session with Dr. Farid Hulak. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Holaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get into the summary of the book of the week for this past week, the book of the week for this week is Good Reasons for Bad Feelings by Dr. Randolph Ness. Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychiatry. And if you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I'm uh, maybe what you can call a big fan of what we consider bad feelings, those feelings that don't feel so good, because oftentimes we ignore them because they don't feel good, but we don't recognize they're telling us something. So, for example, if you're sad, you want to try to understand what you're sad about, just like if you have physical pain. You don't want to ignore the pain or just numb the pain. You want to see where the pain is coming from because that could be telling you something about what's going on with your body. Similarly, our bad feelings, the ones that don't feel good, can be telling us something and oftentimes they can be protective as well. So this was one of those cases where I saw the title of the book and judged the book by its cover or as my friend Sina told me last night, really it's more that I'm choosing the books by the cover, but I guess both kind of work. Uh, But I really wanted to see what this uh, psychiatrist had to say about the good reasons for bad feelings. So I'll be sharing that with you next week. The book of the week for this week was Mind Fixers by Anne Harrington, Psychiatry's Troubled Search for the Biology of Mental Illness. And I really, really enjoyed this book um, to the point where I took my time reading some of the pages even over again because there were so many insights looking at the history of psychiatry a history that isn't always so pleasant to look at, which I think is why it's important for us to look at it, and specifically focusing on how we've tried to determine the biological underpinnings of mental illness, or there's been a lot of efforts to figure out biologically what's going on, and sometimes we've overshot what we can do. We thought we could figure things out a lot more quickly than we could, or we thought we had figured it out, but in fact, we hadn't. And also, she talks about different parts of um, the history of psychiatry and psychology, where we see a lot of things like racism, um, sexism, even heterosexism. The diagnosis for homosexuality was still in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual just a few decades ago. So the history, again, has a lot of not-so-beautiful parts to it. But the book does a great job of looking at different aspects of the history of psychiatry to get a better understanding of where we have been, also where we are now. But then, as always, when we look back, it can help us to look forward, to understand what we can do going forward and learn lessons from the past. Um, Because, as you might know, There's been a lot of 
elements to psychiatry over the years that were not quite so pleasant. And I say psychiatry because that's the title of the book, but I'm thinking of the whole mental health field, which I would consider myself a part of as well. Um, she outlined some of the treatments that we used to see that were done, for example, lobotomies or psychosurgery, where parts of the brain were removed. And oftentimes people felt that this was great because someone who was very agitated or was having hallucinations or was difficult to deal with would become very calm and in some ways easy to deal with, but in a lot of ways they would lose their personality or their sense of self. And so, as always, we have to look at what is the cost of our treatment. Maybe there's some benefits or something that some people find beneficial, but really what is the overall benefit? Uh, and that even means that we might have to take a step back and just look at what does mental illness even mean? And there's people who've argued that mental illness is a myth. Thomas Saz, I don't know how to pronounce that, it's S-C- S-Z-A-S-Z, I think. Uh, he wrote a book about that, that mental illness itself is a myth. And I wouldn't go that far to say that mental illness itself completely is a myth, but I do think that at times we've pathologized or created names for disorders, and names for things, um, or made people feel that they were ill when maybe they were just different. And I think a good starting point for understanding what is in fact a mental illness or mental pain is in fact that the pain, if the person themselves is not feeling good with whatever it is they're dealing with. So if someone is extremely depressed and can't get out of bed and is feeling down, that could be part of a mental illness. Or if someone is so anxious that it's hard for them to sit still or to focus or concentrate, that might be part of an illness. But at times it hasn't been clear what an illness is. And we have to be aware that what we consider a mental illness is always going to be affected by the norms of a culture and a society. And so that's another issue that psychiatry and psychology has to deal with, that it is so hard we try to be objective and to look at something like mental health in an objective way, but we are so affected by the cultural norms that we don't recognize that at times things we think of as normal or things that we think of as human might actually be affected by culture. So it might not be actual mental health we're looking at, but more someone fitting the mold or the norms that we have somehow created and co-created together. And this issue um, has come up throughout history, or even we see mental illnesses, quote-unquote, that have been developed in what we can call a reaction to history or the context that things are happening in. For example, hysteria in women, which was thought to potentially come from the, um, I believe, the uterus floating, which is why a hysterectomy has that same uh, word, but uh, that it was somehow something about women that made them this way when really we can recognize it more as because women were so repressed during that time that their quote-unquote illness of hysteria was an expression of that. Uh, the body keeps the score. The body cannot hold in the mental anguish and pain or in some way will show it. And so we saw people expressing it in this way, which the doctors, of course, men at the time, would say that these women had this illness 
when really the illness was one of society and there was nothing actually wrong with the women or what they were what was wrong with them was the pain they were experiencing but it wasn't something within them that was wrong it was more an indication of the bigger illness of society and so as i read this book that was also something i kept in mind that we're looking at sometimes barbaric treatments like things like the psychosurgeries removing the parts of someone's brain which really is just to make them easier for us to deal with. So if you're running a hospital and you have people who are agitated or having hallucinations, it's a lot easier for you to run that psychiatric hospital if people are just calm and docile and don't move. But really you're taking away something from that person. And that itself is a big argument um, to, to look at. Uh, but what I had to think about is what would people look back on, let's say a hundred years from now, and see as something surprising that we do or a way that we judge mental illness and something that they think would not uh, that's almost laughable to them i think that's always something we have to think about we can think back on slavery unfortunately still exists but institutionalized slavery even here in the united states and people think wow i can't believe that was happening here but we have to wonder what injustices are happening now that we maybe accept or don't make a big enough deal about and should be doing something about and should not accept that generations in the future will look back on and, and laugh at us or be in shock that we were able to do that. So in reading this book, at times I was in awe that they were, for example, putting people into insulin-induced comas or um, cutting parts of their brain or doing different types of really extreme treatments that had very little um, validity, although they thought they did. And what are we doing now? What am I even contributing or how do I contribute to the problems that are currently happening as well? And that's something worth looking at. Uh, so, and going back to this idea of what a mental illness is, we have to be aware of not judging different as illness because sometimes people might think different than most people, but does that necessarily mean they have an illness? Because, for example, someone being extremely smart might make them think differently but we might call someone a genius but we rarely say well if you have above a certain iq you are mentally ill in this way so we see that there always is a judgment attached with mental illness or almost always and very often there is and to me looking at the uh, basic way of approaching it as if someone is in distress that's an illness which almost always is part of um, a mental illness that is a big way of looking at things but the line can get blurry. For example, social anxiety. Uh, in this book, she talks about how in some of the recent illnesses that are looked at, uh, social anxiety was not something that was really recognized before. Now, people might have recognized people as shy or having some issues around people, but this term so, uh, social anxiety or social phobia was, was not really something that was accepted. But the way she puts it, which... Um, was an interesting way of saying it was that when it came to social anxiety, because it wasn't recognized quite in that way, people hadn't heard of social phobia. She says, since few people had ever heard of this disorder, the company, which is one of the drug companies, realized it needed to sell the disease before it could sell the drug. So it launched a public advertising campaign about social anxiety. So we know this happens with medical issues as well, where sometimes they'll create a name for an issue so that it could seem like it's an illness and then because they have a drug that they want to push for it. And so we see this happening in psychiatry as well, 
where the drug companies will at times want to push a drug, and so uh, uh, illness or some way of being is pathologized, and then they get to push the drug and say, oh, you're shy, you should take this pill. Where being shy necessarily doesn't mean something is wrong with you. People are different in the way that they uh, are introverted and extroverted. Some people are a little more anxious, might be slower to warm up, but it doesn't mean something is necessarily wrong with them, that they are ill and that they should take a pill for that. And so it is very cliche to say, oh, big pharma is the problem. Um, and But the truth is there is a lot that gets done because of the amount of money that is made in the pharmaceutical industries. And she shares some of those numbers at times. But she also says, and I think it's fair that uh, psychiatric medications have had a lot of benefit for a lot of people as well. So it's not like it's just bad. It definitely can be helpful. It definitely has helped a lot of people get their lives back and, and has led to a lot of healing as well. So it's not that it's all bad, but we have to be aware that at times there can be corrupt forces within something that isn't all bad that can make it worse or can have a negative effect. And you see that throughout the book where the drug companies um, are affected by the profit motive, which can affect how they then treat people, which can be really disheartening to see that that is happening, but that is the reality. And so she um, outlines throughout the book or this theme throughout the book is looking at the biological understanding of mental illness. And at times we think we've had it figured out. And sometimes we have some simplistic understandings, but we don't really understand much. For example, if I say depression, uh, a neurotransmitter people tend to associate with depression is serotonin. We think, oh, depression is all about low serotonin. And there's some truth to that, but that's definitely not the whole story. It doesn't explain the whole thing. Or uh, schizophrenia is too much dopamine in some parts of the brain. And that does seem to be the case, but that's definitely, again, not the whole story. And the way these things interact is very complicated. Uh, so she points to the fact that often throughout psychiatry, there's been this movement or these statements to say that we fully are going or that we are going to understand the brain so fully or we already have when really we don't know a whole lot. Or oftentimes we think we know more or they might sell that they know more than they actually do. And so there hasn't been the kind of advances that were promised in the 80s and 90s about what would happen in the field of psychiatry with the new forms of brain imaging and different things that were uh, technologies that were coming forward. They didn't make the advancements that they had advertised or predicted. Now, this isn't to say they should stop the research or stop going in that direction. I think there's so much that um, can continue to be understood. But in a way, this book was a sober understanding or a sober look that we have a long way to go. And we always have to be aware of acknowledging what we don't know and not overstating what we know or telling people we know something when in fact we don't. And so in the field of psychiatry, we've seen a lot of movements towards trying to say we understand what's going on in the brain completely when really we still don't. And in a way that can make sense because the brain is such a complex organ we can say easily the most complex organ we have, and then trying to even understand what mental illness is and isn't is complicated. And then also even trying to describe mental illnesses. Uh, they, she talks about how the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, we think of it in some ways, people even call it the Bible of psychiatry because it's supposed to have all the disorders in it, but it's very unclear 
what a mental illness is. Or when we, for example, say depression and we have a list of symptoms, people express depression in very different ways. Or maybe even what we call depression might be several different things or several, several different illnesses that might be caused by different things. But we call it one name and we still aren't very clear on that. But we have these symptom checklists that we think are somehow uh, you know, using that word Bible, they come down from God and that we have to honor them, but we don't really always know where that is coming from or how much validity that has. And I tend to be conservative when it comes to diagnosis or in putting too much weight in diagnosis. Not that I don't think it's important, but because I think there's a lot more going on that sometimes can be labeled or that can be broken down into the symptoms, the way that we look at them uh, using checklists. And we have to be aware of that. So diagnosis is important, but it's not some type of label like you take a drug test and we know, or a blood test, and we know for sure you have high cholesterol. It's not that black and white, and so we have to be a little bit careful with that. So this book really was a great look in depth into the history of psychiatry and specifically looking at psychiatry's search for the biology of mental illness, and we're still in that search. There's still a long way to go. Um, but the book does a great job of outlining that history, and I really enjoyed it and recommend it highly. And that was Mind Fixers by Anne Harrington. And again, the book of the week for this week is Good Reasons for Bad Feelings by Randolph Ness. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, talked about the book Mind Fixers, looking at the history of psychiatry. And as I mentioned, one of the issues psychiatry has faced in the whole mental health field is how do we define mental illness and mental health? And so looking at parents and how they approach their children, we can take this same mindset or recognize the same mindset a lot of parents can have with their kids, which is that we sometimes think we know how our kids are supposed to become or what they should be and shouldn't be. And we impose those values and judgments on their, our kids, not realizing that sometimes they might be different, but that that different is not necessarily mean bad or something that has to be fixed. And the analogy I like to use when it comes to having children in this regard is that a lot of times we think we know what the kid is supposed to look like. And so I say, rather than approaching it that way, imagine that you've been given a seed and your job is to help nurture that seed to grow into whatever plant it is supposed to become. But you don't know exactly what that plant is. It could be a very green leafy plant. It could be a flower. It could be a rose. It could be an orchid. It could be anything. But your job isn't to try to pull it to grow in a certain way, but to allow it to grow to its own full and beautiful potential. You're not supposed to make it something, but allow it to become its best version of itself. So this can be challenging for parents because we often think our job is to make our kids become a certain way. And we have that pressure to turn them into something. Or very difficult for a lot of parents is when they have more than one child to not compare them and think, well, for example, one of my kids is very outgoing and makes friends everywhere and the other one's a little bit more quiet. I have to make the quiet one more outgoing when that's not necessarily the case. Some people are more extroverted. Some people are more introverted. Some people like to walk into a room and start talking to people. Other people need some time to warm up and 
get familiar and then they might connect with one or two people and that's okay. Not everyone has to be the same way. So we have to be aware of the biases we bring into judging people in general, but especially in how we judge our kids. I had Dr. Jennifer Galvin on the show, I think more than a year ago now, especially talking about or specifically talking about this issue of introverted versus versus extroverted children. And so we definitely have a bias towards extroversion. And a great book on this topic is Quiet by Susan Cain, where she talks about how we tend to think being extroverted is better than being introverted. So if you're someone who gets nervous around groups of people, that means something is wrong with you. And as I mentioned from the book Mind Fixers, this idea that social anxiety, is it a real thing? I think at some level it can be, but sometimes we'll associate shyness with an illness. So if you're shy, that means something is wrong with you when it doesn't have to be the case. Now, if someone is very shy because they have low self-esteem and they don't feel good about themselves, that can be something that can be looked at or addressed. But if someone is a little bit more quiet than other people, that's not necessarily a bad or a wrong thing. And actually, some people prefer more introverted people to have friendships with because someone who's an introvert tends to be someone who likes to have more deep, meaningful conversations. Sometimes people will say, I hate small talk. And usually people who are more introverted don't like small talk because that's the part that they don't enjoy or can feel very um, artificial to them, but they really value the deeper conversation. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with someone preferring deeper conversations with one person or two people. That can be a very important skill and asset. So if you are a parent and you have your two kids and you take them to the party, one of them runs in and starts playing with a bunch of kids and the other one stands in the corner and has to look around a little bit and get comfortable or might hold on to your leg a little bit longer than you remember the older kid doing, that's totally okay. And allow for them both to experience the party in their own way. Neither one of them is experiencing it right or wrong. It's just different. And I really like that word different as opposed to judging right and wrong. We usually think there is a right or wrong way to do things, and sometimes there is, but in most situations, there isn't one right way to do it. So that's one way that parents can judge their kids in a right or a wrong way. You should be outgoing. We think everyone should be a public speaker. Everyone should want to be class president, but that's not the case. Um, and it's not just the case that if you aren't going to be outgoing, you can't make a difference. Lots of introverts throughout history have made a huge impact by things that they have done. Maybe you don't like public speaking, but you can create some kind of online campaign. You can create, let's say, an Instagram page where you promote information on some topic that allows people to learn about it. Maybe you won't like the face-to-face -face interaction, but you create content that actually can have a huge impact. Um, you can talk one-on-one -on -one to people that makes a huge impact as well. So there's lots of ways we can do that. And at the end of the day, not everyone has to become someone that has some huge impact in the world. We need people to do various things and various tasks. So again, think of your kids not as a finished product in your mind that you already can imagine, but recognize the gift that you are given, which is the gift that each individual is, that they are some flower or some plant that is yet to unfold, and you get to be there 
and be part of that unfolding process. We get to see who they become. And parents have a very hard job when it comes to having multiple kids because kids pick up on what you're favoring and what you're not. One of the things that therapists always have to be aware of and deal with is oftentimes families come in and they say, this is my problem child. So this kid is acting out. This kid is doing this, being defiant, talks back, getting in trouble in school, all of that. And then often there's another kid who is the easy one. Oh, I can't tell you how many times I've heard she's an angel or he's an angel. And although they think that's telling me that kid is okay and we don't have to think about that child, very quickly that sounds some alarm bells in my own head that we have to be mindful of this child because it's very easy for that kid to be forgotten or neglected. We focus on the kid that is outwardly showing us the problems and we can ignore the child who is making things easier for us. But if we take a step back and look at the dynamics of a family like this, what you often will find is that child that is the angel that is so easy has actually learned to not express their issues, not express feelings, not create conflict, not do things that mommy and daddy don't like because they already see that there's too much conflict or tension in the home. So a wonderful book that looks at this is uh, The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller, where she talks about the gifted child not necessarily being one who is good in arts or math or something like that, that, that type of a gift, but one that is sensitive to the feelings and needs of others. So some people, and then before they become adults, some children are very sensitive and attuned to other people's feelings. So if they see that mommy gets sad when I get sad, or mommy seems to get stressed out when my older brother causes problems, they might learn to be the good, perfect child. As long as I don't create more problems, mommy is okay. Mommy will be happy. Or mommy even actually explicitly tells me, oh, thank God you're so easy, or thank God you don't cry like your brother or cause trouble like your brother does. And so this younger sibling, or doesn't have to be younger, could be the older sibling, learns that I can be the one that makes things easier. But unfortunately, what that means is that this child is going to put their own needs and feelings away. They learn that if I don't express what I want, if I don't express what I need, if I don't create conflict, there's more peace in this home. And because that is so important to me, it's better for me to hold things in. So if you have two kids, be very aware of the fact that sometimes you might think there's one kid who's so easy, that means they're okay. And you have one kid who's expressing more um, behavioral issues, acting out, talking back. That's the problem, child, that you want to be aware that they're both expressing the problems of the family in different ways. They're both expressing what's going on or fitting a role or um, fitting yeah, their role in the family in a different way. And we want to be mindful of this. The most common experience I see with this is after a divorce where parents will say one kid is taking it really hard and crying all the time and the other one is taking it really easily. And they think that's, the again, the problem child, the one that is crying. Sometimes the one that's crying is actually the one that is in a more healthy way expressing the pain of going through something very difficult. And the younger one or the older one, whoever is the one that's holding things in, is actually holding in their feelings. Because again, they don't feel that there is that space and comfort and security to express their feelings. So they're going to hold it all in. So as parents, as much as it's difficult to 
run a household and raise children and if you're still married have that marriage going and everything that takes into doing all of those things we have to be aware of not wanting our kids to make things easier on us by putting that pressure on them whether we express it directly or indirectly we don't want to give them the feeling that i'd rather you don't cry because that's going to make my day easier or i'd rather you always listen to everything i have to say because that's going to make my job as a parent easier or make it less stressful for me. And parents will often express that. This kid listens to everything I have to say. This kid talks back sometimes. And realistically, every child should talk back sometimes. So as much as it might be easier for you if they just followed your orders all of the time, you need your child to build up that resilience in themselves to think for themselves, feel for themselves, and sometimes disagree with you. Does it make things more complicated? Absolutely. Does it make it a little bit more challenging to manage the household? Yes. But is your job just to create peace and make everything easy or to help develop your children to have all the qualities that make them a good human being? It's the second one. We want to help them become strong humans, not just become someone easy to deal with. Uh, for example, I have parents that come in and they say, I wish my child would stick up to his teacher more. I wish you would just go in there and tell her that he's upset. And then I ask them, well, is it easy for your child to tell you they're upset or they don't like something you're doing? And when they think about it, they realize, no, they haven't made it easy for their child to express themselves, to disagree, to have a conflict with their parents. And yet we expect when they go out into the world, they're going to stick up for themselves and stand up for themselves. So we want to model for them within the home what we hope that they'll express outside of the home. So if we just want our kids to listen to us all the time and do exactly what we say, but then when they go out into the world to stick up for themselves and to say no and to be a challenge if they want to be a challenge, well, they're not going to do that. You have to show them that it's okay to disagree in the home and it's okay to disagree outside of the home. We don't just want our kids to be easy. And so coming back to this idea of looking at our kids and evaluating them, we have to remember that we're not dealing with some robot that we're trying to turn into something that we want it to be. We're dealing with a human being that's going to have feelings, it's going to have different wants and needs than the ones we think they should have, and allow for them to be that. We don't know what they're going to be, and really, even if you try to turn them into something, what they can actually become if you allow them to meet their potential is far better than anything you can try to create on your own. So if anything, your job is to get out of their way, to help them have an environment where they can grow and develop, but not interfere with that process of growth and development. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So oftentimes on my Monday night show, I'll post on Instagram asking for people to send me suggestions for topics. And thank you to everyone who sends those suggestions. I obviously can't get to a lot of them, but I do take note of them. And so I wanted to mention one or talk about one tonight that relates to the topics I've covered so far. And it comes from Purple Banna. And she just wrote, as far as a topic suggestion, the link between artist genius and madness. And so the reason why I'm saying this can relate to what I've covered tonight is looking at this idea of being different. And so when we look at mental illness 
as uh, the book of the week from this past week looked at the history of mental illness or the history of psychiatry, we oftentimes find that when people think differently, it has been judged as being a part of an illness or that they are mentally ill. And this is a blurry line because what is mental illness when we look at thinking differently? Because any innovation that we've seen throughout history, whether it's scientific or artistic, involves some level of innovation, some level of thinking differently. It's almost in the definition. If something is going to be innovative, it has to be different from what's been done before. And so the creative process is always going to involve having some level of thinking differently from the ways that everyone has been thinking so far. Now, if we look at theories of creativity or ways we study creativity, some people would say that there's nothing new under the sun. So really what creativity oftentimes is, is to synthesize different things that have already existed into a new way of doing things. So it's not actually something brand new being invented, but taking things that have already existed and adding to it in some way or using it in some different purposes. Creativity um, essentially is that. But the question about the link between uh, artistic genius and madness, I think is a very interesting topic because very often we've seen that people who are very smart or geniuses or especially who are artistic geniuses can struggle with mental illness. There are lots of studies that have shown that bipolar disorder, which involves alternating between mania, where you have an um, elevated mood, lack of need for sleep, uh, high self-esteem, and oftentimes can experience things like racing thoughts. And then that alternates with the other pole, which is depression, which is when you're feeling down, um, and that one people are more familiar with. But we find often that artists are more likely to have bipolar disorder compared to the rest of the population, or lots of very successful uh, or famous artists are more likely to deal with that. So I think we do see that the idea of thinking differently, and I know I'm saying it like it's only a good thing, I think in a lot of ways it is, but oftentimes it can be that someone could think so differently or the reasons why they can think differently than others can be part of a mental illness or can be part of something that hurts them as well. Um, a book I shared a year and a half ago now, I think it was called A First Rate Madness by, gosh, I forgot his name, Nasir Qayemi, something like that. It was an Iranian, actually, professor uh, who wrote this book, looking at how lots of leaders were good leaders, not despite their mental illness, but because of their mental illness. For example, he was saying how Abraham Lincoln, because he was uh, very depressed. He dealt with severe depression for a lot of his life to the point where he wouldn't carry um, a pocket knife, which was very common during that time because he thought he might hurt himself. That's how depressed he was at times. But he was arguing that because of that depression, he had a more realistic view of things. Or also because of his depression, something we see is that people who experience depression tend to have a better ability at empathy. They can see other people's sides. They can see other people's pain a little bit more easily because they tend to be more in touch with their own pain. And so he was arguing, for example, that because of that, Abraham Lincoln was able to unite the South and the North because he was able to see the different sides of their perspectives and bring them together. 
Now, he was also a very brilliant man, and he used lots of tactics to make that happen, but he might have been more able to see those two sides. Or Winston Churchill was more uh, aware or felt that the threat of Adolf Hitler was more than um, Neville Chamberlain because he also experienced very extreme depression and was more aware of that darker side. He could be aware that things aren't always going to be so rosy. So it could have been his mental illness that actually aided him in that way. So here we see, uh, looking at this question of genius, um, I know she asked about artistically, but in another aspect as being a leader, we see that there can be some kind of a connection between that and mental illness. Because again, we might call it illness, but oftentimes it allows someone to see things differently. And as I mentioned in the first segment, one of the ways we can look at what that difference is, whether it's mental illness or whether it's just thinking differently, is the pain that the individual goes through. Now, that even being said, sometimes people who have a particular mental illness, if you ask them, even if they've been diagnosed, they might even be on medication, receiving treatment, if you ask them if they'd rather live their life with that mental illness or without, they actually might say they would live with it. It depends on what we're talking about. So I'm not saying everyone who has a mental illness wishes they still had it, but sometimes they recognize it as a big part of who they are, or it allows for them to see things in a certain way that they wouldn't want to lose or to trade off. Even I can speak from my own experience. I was talking to a friend earlier today about being sensitive and how we sometimes use this term, usually in a pejorative way, a judgmental way, um, but it actually does not have to be something negative, but we were talking about how being sensitive means that you can pick up on things that maybe other people don't pick up on. And so she was um, has done work with medical instruments, so we're saying how uh, a medical instrument that is more sensitive than others can be very valuable because it could pick up things that other instruments cannot. However, at the same time, that more sensitive instrument is more likely to get overwhelmed, or maybe if there's too much sound, let's say, coming in, might get overwhelmed more easily than one that is less sensitive. So being sensitive in and of itself isn't bad. It can make you different. And I feel in myself, I can see having that sensitivity when it comes to emotional things and seeing people going through emotional things or just having compassion for other people. I can see at times where I can be affected by things very strongly. And I've gone through my own experience of feeling bad about this before when I was younger, but recognizing the strength that this can have or how it can be used as a strength. Sometimes things are a gift and a curse, or there's a double-edged sword. In some ways it can be good, in some ways it can be bad. But recognizing that this can actually be a gift, that being more sensitive although it can make me get affected by things more, might also allow for me to hopefully help people more or feel things in a way more than others might can actually be okay. And something in that book, The Highly Sensitive Person by Dr. I think it was Elaine Aaron, if I'm not mistaken, but she talked about how people who are deemed to be highly sensitive actually enjoyed positive events more than people who were not. And that's something that I also resonated with, because if I go to a concert, I'm one of the loudest people there, screaming and yelling and having a great time. Or if I go to a sporting event, as I recently did when I went to Barcelona with my brother and enjoyed the soccer game, I was going crazy in a good way. And that's actually interesting. I just used the word going crazy. And the question was about madness and genius and different types of uh, gifts that we might have. But I was having a great time because I think of 
who I am. And I enjoyed that. And I wouldn't want to lose that. So feeling the highs and the lows that I can at times feel, um, someone might come in and say that could be a form of mental illness if you feel this much. But I wouldn't want to trade that or to lose that because that's part of me and part of how I experience life and what I actually enjoy about the way that I experience life. So if we come back to uh, looking at, for example, artistic genius, it can be very difficult because we see so many people throughout history who have contributed such beautiful art, but who also uh, suffered so much as well. And sometimes we think it's the suffering that created the art, but we don't know if that's necessarily the case. Could it be that if they got some kind of treatment or if they weren't as affected by what they were going through, they could still produce beautiful art? It's not really clear to say. Uh, I remember the documentary on Amy Winehouse that came out a few years ago that I watched, and it was heartbreaking to see her dealing with such severe depression, but then also related to that severe substance abuse um, and how much pain you could see in her. And when I hear her sing, I feel pain. You can feel her pain when she sings. And so it is a blurry line of, well, is it part of her mental illness or mental suffering or pain that contributes to her art? Or is there a way that she could have created that art without it? I don't know. I do feel that people who are in touch with their feelings, you feel that genuineness in their art that you don't feel in someone who, for example, is singing just to be famous or just because they want to get the attention of being a singer. You feel something very different from someone who is an artist who's really, as we say, pouring their heart out into their art. We do feel that difference. Um, but going back to this idea of this thin line between genius and what you can call insanity or mental illness, I think it definitely exists. People who can see the world differently sometimes can see the world too differently. And sometimes they are too ahead of their time, and because of that, they're deemed mentally ill. But sometimes they can lose touch with reality as well, and it's very difficult. So it is a very blurry line. So I, I appreciated that question um, from uh, Instagram follower Purple Banna about this uh, relationship between genius and uh, illness or mental illness, because we do see it all the time. And it's something for us to each think about and looking within ourselves that sometimes things we think of as just negative can actually have a beneficial impact. For example, people who have ADHD, which is a, we give them this diagnosis, we give them this label, and we give them medication. Often we say they need medication. But people who have ADHD tend to be more creative because their mind is making connections and might be going back and forth more than what we consider a typical mind or a healthy mind or a normal mind. All of those, I should be making air quotes, even though you can't see them on the air. Um, but those are judgments that we've made based on assumptions. But they think a little bit differently so they can make connections that most people do not make. Does that mean that it's an illness or it means it's a different way of thinking? Now, if you're running a classroom, it's very nice to have 30 kids that all sit and pay attention and can sit still for a whole class. And if you have a few kids that are bouncing around or daydreaming and not paying attention, we don't like that. So we prefer that the norm be for all kids to just sit still. That's a lot easier than having some kids that think differently. But again, we want to make sure we emphasize different rather than think of it as sick or ill all the time. 
but fortunately we tend to think of it as an illness. So each of us tends to have things about our personality or our character that maybe people have told you are not good or that make you bad or difficult. But oftentimes those are the things that can also be a strength. So for example, if you are considered too carefree, someone might say you're too irresponsible or carefree. And there might be some of that, but there also might be a side to that same coin or the other side of that coin, which is that you are more spontaneous and that can be enjoyable and something that people like. Sometimes people are very organized, but the flip side of being too organized could be that you can be rigid. And so it's finding that balance. So it could be a good and a bad thing. And many parts of our personalities can be that same way. They can have a good side and a bad side. And it's up to each of us to recognize that very often things we think of as a weakness can actually have a strength as well and to pay attention to that. And so when we pay attention to the art that is around us, coming back to the question that was asked, we want to look at where the artist was coming from and try to understand them better. And also to look at artists not just as these people that produce something for us, but as whole human beings. Something I've recognized is that when people become famous, we sometimes think they're no longer human. We don't let them be full human beings. And so oftentimes they become famous and along with already potentially having some penchant to mental illness, the destabilizing effects of fame can affect them as well. And so we've seen this in so many tragic stories of celebrities that unfortunately end up either taking their life or overdosing or dealing with things in various ways, very often because we don't deal with them as human beings. So this is a flip side of dehumanization that I've talked about on the show before. Usually we think of dehumanization as making someone less than human, and that is horrible and something that we very often do. But the flip side of that is not good either, to make someone better than human. Now, most of us would think I would love if people worshipped me or saw me as a god or goddess or as better than other people. But when we do that, we don't allow people the space to be a full human being, and that itself can be destabilizing and doesn't give them actually the space to not do so well or to need a break or to not produce something good sometimes or be uh, a fallible human being. And so as much as we think it's good to put someone on a pedestal, when you're on a pedestal, you're isolated in a way and also not given that space to be a full human being. And that itself can be a problem. So I want to thank Purple Banner for that suggestion for the question about this link between um, artistry and genius and madness, because it definitely is something very real and something worth talking about more. And thank you to everyone who sends their suggestions for topics. I always do look at them. I don't always get to respond, um, but I do take note of them. And then on future shows, I might get to use them. And also I've gotten a lot of recent recommendations for books. So please keep those coming. I always have a book of the week. And so I'm always looking for new books. And the book of the week for this week is Good Reasons for Bad Feelings by Randolph Ness, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychiatry. Looking forward to reading that and sharing that with you on next Monday's show. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's program. Thank you to Amir here in the studio and everyone out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.